Good morning, everyone. Uh, welcome uh, to our conference today. Uh, I'm John Hess, uh, CEO of Hess Corporation, a global independent exploration and production company, and a member of the CSIS board. I'm delighted uh, to welcome all of you to a presentation today of the International Energy Agency's 2016 Annual World Energy Outlook. This is an event we always look forward to uh, every year, and I believe it typifies CSIS's mission to provide strategic insights and bipartisan policy solutions that help decision makers chart a course toward a better world. To present this year's World Energy Outlook, we are fortunate to have with us Dr. Fatih Barol, Executive Director of the International Energy Agency. Dr. Barol is one of the world's preeminent thought leaders on energy. He is widely respected by government and industry officials and his voice is sought after across the world on this important subject. He took office as the new executive director in September of 2015 and has been working very hard since then uh, after spending 20 years with the IEA and before that with OPEC in Vienna. So he bring, brings a unique perspective to energy. Since taking the helm as executive director, Dr. Barol has worked tirelessly to build strong relationships and increase membership among consuming countries, as well as producing countries so that the IEA can serve as an effective global forum. Under Dr. Barol's leadership, the IEA has rightfully expanded its role beyond its original charter to become the world's leading authority on global energy matters. And we laud uh, the outreach efforts of the IEA to include emerging markets uh, as well as producers around the world to make the IEA truly international, truly global. One of Dr. Barol's many accomplishments with the IEA has been directing the flagship World Energy Outlook, which is one of the most comprehensive studies of global energy available. It provides essential insights into energy demand and supply trends and the implications for energy security, environmental protection, and also economic development. The 2016 World Energy Outlook will address issues that are fundamental to a changing energy landscape, including the road ahead for oil, natural gas, and coal, a critical area of discussion in the current oil price environment the role of renewables in the global energy mix, the impact of COP21 on long-term energy trends, the water requirements for future energy production, and also a special look on Mexico and its energy outlook. Who better to present this important piece of work than Fatih Barol? Discussions with him are always thought-provoking and illuminating, and we are honored truly to have him with us today. So now please join me in welcoming my esteemed colleague and most of all dear friend, Dr. Fatih Barol. So thank you very much, uh, John, for this uh, very kind uh, introduction. And many thanks to uh, Sarah, Frank, Guy uh, for inviting me once again to uh, CSIS. 
We have uh, released our report uh, the day before yesterday in London, World Energy Outlook. I think this is the uh, third day after that, and we are enjoying a lot of uh, discussion about our report on oil markets, what we say, and uh, renewables. When I say oil markets, both on the supply side and demand side, some of the things what we say you will see in a moment that are not very much in line with the current discussions in the uh, oil markets, some of the voices, both on the demand and supply side, on climate change, and I am going to discuss this uh, with you. I am with uh, my colleague, uh, Rebecca Gagan, who is our head of our uh, uh, communication, who told me that after we released our report in London, there was such a big interest that we were fourth in the the top trending, how do you say, it, in the Twitter. Uh, and we, the third one was the Kardashian sisters. So this is, we just, <laughs> we were just lost to Kardashian sisters, but we were just, just slightly behind them. Uh, we think that the, uh, I should perhaps go this way. This doesn't, does it work? No, it doesn't move. Oh, done. Okay, sorry. Okay, perfect. So, before looking at the future, just a few numbers, a uh, few uh, cornerstones where we are uh, today. <coughs> Middle East. <clears throat> the share of Middle East in the global oil production as of last month reached a historical high, 35%. It is the highest in the last 40 years mainly growth from Iraq, Iran, Saudi Arabia, and elsewhere. And this is something that I think for the discussion we will have in the next few minutes, uh, something that we may need to keep in mind. Second, we are seeing a transformation of the gas markets. Some of you may remember in the year 2009, when we hit the World Energy Outlook, we said a silent revolution starting in North America, talking about the shale gas revolution at that time. Now we think there is a second revolution coming, this time driven by huge amount of LNG coming to the markets with lots of implications. I will come to that in a moment as well. Third, renewables. We will talk about our projections. You may think they are low, they are high, but there is one number. This is data. What happened last year? Last year, the amount of renewable capacity, power capacity installed worldwide was higher than the installed capacity from oil plus gas plus coal plus nuclear put together. And this is not a projection, this is not a scenario, this is a data, what happened. And we will look at the future of renewables in a, a moment. We had an agreement in Paris last uh, December. Almost 200 countries signed that agreement, very important. But now, 
when you look at that agreement, all the countries made a pledge, I am going to decrease my emissions that much, this much, for the year 2030 beyond. But in order to reach those targets, the changes need to happen in the energy sector. Why? Very simple. Two-thirds of the emissions causing climate change come from the energy sector. Without fixing the problem in the energy sector, we can't fix this problem. And we look all the country submissions, pledges that the countries made, all detailed, 200, to see if those pledges are implemented, where do they take us to? What are the implications of Paris for the energy sector? I will tell you in a moment. And one issue which I need to highlight, uh, my former boss, uh, Guy Corozo, is here. He is uh, one of the persons who, who deals with this issue a lot. The issue is today, 1.2 billion people in the world, they have no electricity, 20%. Mainly in Sub-Saharan Africa, India, Pakistan, Bangladesh. I am saying this for two reasons, reminding you for these two reasons. One, it's a moral issue before the economic issue. Second, when these people in India or Africa make their choices to build a power plant, their first thought is how to do it in the cheapest way, rather than maybe not the most sustainable way, because it's a very urgent survival issue there. And therefore, to put the things in a context, that the different countries have different uh, reasons to shape their energy policies, to put their uh, perspective uh, there. Now, we think, as you will see in a moment, we have not one single a, a future in terms of energy. There are different possibilities. It's up to governments to decide where we go from uh, here. And the government policies will be in the energy sector extremely, extremely important. Now, let's try to look at the future in our central scenario, which many people think it is the most likely development. When you look at the last 25 years, coal by far the winner in terms of its contribution to the global energy mix. Oil, gas, and other low carbon sources as well. But when we look at the next 25 years, we see coal will grow, but much less than before, and losing some market share. Oil will, in our view, still continue to uh, grow. I will come to that in a moment. But the gas will be definitely growing strongly. In fact, gas in all our scenarios, even the climate constraint scenario, natural gas will still uh, grow. But the champion is by far the low carbon resources. It is renewables and also nuclear power. But when I say nuclear power, it is mainly 
happening in China. So every second nuclear power plant built today, uh, the second one is in China, the other one is in the uh, altogether uh, rest of the world. And renewables is the growth story. And it is not only happening because of the government support, but it is also happening for cost reasons, the decline of the cost, which I will come in a moment. And also, renewables are also growing across the world, not only in the so-called Western world. In fact, the, the champion of renewables is by far China. Number one in solar, number one in wind, and number one in hydropower, number one in, in, in renewables. So uh, this is one issue I wanted to highlight. The future is mainly the growth story is dominated by gas and renewables, but oil still growing. Another issue, which I think is as important as this, is the following. In the last 25 years, global energy demand increased by 60% and the global GDP growth on average was about 3.4%. World economy increase on average each year 3.4%, and in the last 25 years, the energy demand growth globally was 60%. Our assumption for the next 25 years in terms of economy is also 3.3, very close to uh, last uh, 25 years. But this time, energy demand grows by 30% half of it. The main reason here is efficiency. We are using energy more efficiently now and we'll be using energy more efficiently in the future compared to past. So think about the cars 25 years ago, how much they used uh, gasoline for uh, 100 kilometers or 100 miles and, and in the future it will be even less, but we will still uh, need it. So just to, Let's think that energy demand will not grow automatically with the economic growth. Efficiency can definitely play a role uh, here. Now, renewables. Whatever business we do, we need to take renewables seriously. Whatever the part of the equation, if we work on oil or gas or coal or electricity, uh, investments, uh, whatever we do. This is, and here, government support is uh, still very important. Last year, it is the, we thought the growth in the world energy of 2015 coming from solar and wind was very strong. But this year, we have even increased our expectations, mainly because of two reasons. One, Chinese 13-year, five-year plan set very strong targets for renewable growth, and they always reach their targets in the past Chinese. This is China giving a lot of support for renewables. The second one is in the US Congress in December, there was a tax credit uh, law passing, and this gives also another big push like other countries. And we think renewables will make about 40% of electricity generation in the year 2040, moving about 23% uh, 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 today. But if the world goes for a strong climate path, which means reaching the so-called two degrees target, <coughs> renewables need to grow even further. Now, 
renewables made a major achievement in the power sector, in the electricity. Many people, in fact, when you talk about renewables, the first thing comes to our mind is renewables used in generating electricity. But in fact, there is a huge potential to use renewables in different parts of the energy sector. For example, to produce heat, warming at home, or the industry, the, the boilers, industrial boilers. There is a huge potential uh, there, and therefore we think the, uh, the next chapter for renewables should be, after having a successful story in electricity generation, looking at the heat and also transportation, especially in terms of biofuels uh, there. And uh, governments uh, today, in the 150 countries across the world, there are uh, support policies for renewables for electricity generation, but for heat and transport, it is very, very low, and there's a huge potential there to penetrate for the renewables. For example, solar water heaters. Many of us even don't know, perhaps, uh, uh, or never saw, seen this uh, once. We talk about solar PV a lot, but the energy produced by solar water heaters is five times higher than the solar PVs today something which is uh, very important uh, to note. Now, energy security. We still believe as IEA, energy security is still a major issue. Even though there's plenty of oil, plenty of uh, gas, when we look at the next years uh, to come. And, or I should say, but energy security can be dealt not only in the important countries, not only by increasing the production, we have now some new tools to address the energy security. What do I mean? This is the US, for example, net oil imports today. And we think soon US will not import oil at all or very, very little. This is mainly a result of three factors. One, we expect domestic production will continue to increase as a result of shale oil. But second, the efficiency improvements in the transportation sector, cars, trucks, brings the consumption down, and therefore it also helps to reduction of imports. So imports have two parts, importing something, how much you produce and how much you consume. You increase the production and you decrease the consumption as a result of uh, efficiency. So efficiency policies can be a well part of your energy security policies, uh, we think. And also, of course, using biofuels and also perhaps moving to electric cars and natural gas uh, can help. It is the same story with different parts of the world. The message is oil security is still an important issue, but you can address this issue by increasing your production, if you have any reserves, but also lower your consumption through different policy measures. So we shouldn't be only thinking improving oil security is only through increasing domestic production. Oil markets. <clears throat> now, we follow the numbers, as you know, very, very closely on a daily, monthly, yearly basis, what's happening in the demand, supply, investments, 
And some of the numbers we see, despite the loss of oil in the market, we are really uh, worrying for some of the trends which are emerging now. When you look at our uh, reports, first number, which is worrying in my view, the, the approval of the new projects for uh, crude oil in the last two years now came to a level which we have never, never seen since 1950s because of the decline in investments. The same thing is for the discoveries. We have seen the discoveries in the last two years came to a lowest levels in the last four decades. We don't discover, we discover very small volumes. Why? Because investments are declining. For example, for exploration. If you don't have money for exploration, you don't look for it. I mean, you find something if you look for it. So we don't look for it, so we don't find it. So therefore, uh, we are seeing both the discovery rates as well as the approved uh, uh, new projects in historical uh, law. And we think this may well creating a gap in the next few years uh, to come. Yes, we have title here, it's excellent. But there are two issues here. One, tight oil is not something that just you push the button and next day it will run. You need to find rigs, equipment, workers, engineers, and up to one year, nine months, uh, one year you have to bring them together. It will not be immediate response, this is number one. Number two, the amount of oil which we are not putting on the markets is so big that the tight oil response may not be enough to cover the base load we are losing. We should not forget that every year, leave aside the growth in the demand, which I will come in a moment, we are losing because of the natural depletion of the fields. We are losing each year two million barrels per day. It means every two years, we lose four million, which is a one Iraq. So every two years, we lose one Iraq, even if we don't do anything. If the demand, oil demand was completely zero, 25 years, zero, every year, we still have to increase the production to stay where we are, to, to have the flat thing. And leave aside being zero, oil demand is, of course, increasing. So therefore, if we see a third year of a investment law, 15 and 16, global oil investment decline. If you see 17, another decline, which is very likely when you look at the financial results of the companies, uh, Q3, we may well have some difficulties in the next few years uh, to come. And when we look at the demand side, uh, we still see demand growing. You might have heard some organizations said we are reaching the oil demand peak very soon. What is because of what is happening with the cars? There's a lot of happening cars, this is true. But we don't believe 
that a, with a normal uh, political uh, uh, process we are seeing, what I mean is that with the Paris pledges followed, not a two degrees trajectory, we will see oil demand still increasing. Why? When we look at the components of oil demand growth, we are expecting oil demand will decline in power generation. Today, we still use, especially in the Middle East, substantial amount of oil to use electricity, which is, in my view, criminal from economic point of view, of course, economic point of view, because it is using a lot of money, a lot of emissions, and uh, other things. In buildings, heating, we use a lot of oil. This will be also displaced. You have alternatives for that. And cars, which is a debate today, is a very interesting story. Today, we have one billion cars worldwide, car fleet, and 2040, it is doubling to be two billion. So from one billion to billion. But amount of oil totally we use for cars will slightly decline, even though fleet doubles. The main reason here is the efficiency. Plus natural gas, plus some electric cars coming in the picture. But this picture, unlike those uh, recent things you have uh, read, doesn't lead the IEA to believe that we are peaking in the oil demand because the growth is coming somewhere else. Growth is coming from trucks, from aviation, from petrochemical industry. One impressive number, at least for me, very impressive number, about one-third of the global oil demand growth comes from the Asian trucks only, developing Asia. Okay? And none of those car, uh, trucks, or many of those countries, I should say, more diplomatically, many of those countries don't have any significant efficiency standards for trucks. And I don't see any big uh, say, trend in that uh, direction. And electrifying trucks, <coughs> electrifying jets, or petrochemicals, in my view, is something which will not happen uh, tomorrow. Okay? So, uh, and it is the very reason we believe, uh, even though many things are happening in automotive industry with the cars, we still expect petrochemicals, trucks, and uh, uh, jets are going to drive the oil demand growth, even though the growth will be slower than we have seen in the past. But looking at from oil companies' point of view, the decline in the oil fields are also steeper than they were before. So we have to put these things uh, to, uh, together. I have been to CSIS, uh, thanks to Sarah, uh, Frank, and uh, Guy, and uh, uh, John. Every time I am talking about this decline issue, I know I am boring. But it is such an important issue. If we don't see it, we miss a big part of the entire game. If we spend $3 each year for oil investments, only $1 is for the production to meet the oil demand growth. $2 are to increase the production to compensate the decline in the existing fields. 
So therefore, we have to not only look at the demand, but also the this, uh, uh, decline uh, as well. Now, LNG, I said in the beginning, we are seeing, uh, when we look at all the projects, we look at all the projects worldwide, we are seeing a very bright uh, picture. And the, the, in the international gas trade, the share of LNG growing at the cost of uh, pipelines substantially. We see US, Australia, a bit later, Mozambique, Tanzania, Canada, they are coming significant amount of uh, LNG. And as such, we are seeing the seeds of a second natural gas revolution, if we can say so. And we expect that this may well have serious implications. First, on the gas markets, maybe we will see the contracts may be uh, a bit different in the future than in the past in terms of the, the, the flexibilities and the indexation to oil may be less pronounced in the future compared, in, uh, compared to past. The des final destination clause, we may see much more uh, flexibilities uh, uh, there, and the contract durations may be a bit uh, shorter than they are uh, before. So LNG will bring a lot of flexibility. We have a lot of colleagues uh, from Europe uh, here. One interesting coincidence I wanted to mention, many of the European contracts, and Brenda is here, she knows uh, very well, uh, many European contracts with Russia is coming to an end uh, early 2020s. And it's exactly the time that we are going to see a lot of LNG coming to the markets. So, in my view, a very important opportunity for Europeans to look at the entire picture very carefully in the next uh, few years uh, to come. Now, coal. When we say coal, it is basically China. 50% of the global coal is used in China, 50% the rest of the world. And uh, when uh, we look at the trends, we see that the China coal is declining. In fact, in the last two years, we already see the first signs of it. And the decline of coal in China is not necessarily driven by climate change reasons. It is mainly driven by air pollution reasons in the cities. And uh, we see the same thing in the United States, driven by the economic uh, reasons, including the uh, policy uh, support. And in Europe, also, we expect a lot of coal power plants to be uh, retiring, most of them uh, timely, some of them uh, early retirements in Europe. But we are seeing substantial increase in India and Southeast Asia. The very reason in the beginning I said the having no access to electricity gives a different dimension to different countries when they make their choices. And Southeast Asia and India go for the cheapest option and this will bring the, uh, the coal demand up. 
As a result, the coal demand more or less flat we see in the next years uh, to come. One big worry is the following. I ask my colleagues to look at the power plants being built today in the India, uh, not especially in Southeast Asia, Southeast Asia, where there we see huge growth of coal plants. The type, more than 30 percent, one third of the coal plants built today are subcritical plants. Subcritical plant meaning it is the worst ever. So with the low efficiency, huge emissions, huge pollutions, and they are being built today, and they live with us 40 years. We are looking in with this rather primitive structure, primitive uh, technologies uh, there. And uh, as such, they are going to be really big challenge for the local pollution and also for the uh, global environment. Now, coming to the end and talking about uh, climate change. In Paris, we have an agreement. It was a historical agreement for two reasons. One, there are some goals embedded there, two degrees Celsius. And the second one is as important as that, almost 200 countries of the world signed that agreement. This is very good. But the problem is, ladies and gentlemen, those pledges are not legally binding. So if you don't reach that uh, pledge, nobody, you don't have to pay a penalty for that. In my view, this is something that we all need to keep in mind. And with Paris is uh, now signed and agreed, the deal is done, uh, Dolce Vita. So it's not like that. There is still huge things to do, and especially on the energy sector, if you want to reach those targets. If we fulfill these pledges, even though they are not legally binding, we are seeing a temperature increase 2.7 degrees Celsius still, much higher than the, what scientists tell us. It is the highest level of temperature increase, which is 2 degrees, much higher than that. And the, the difference between 2 degrees and 2.7 degrees is huge in terms of implications on our planet. And this is where we are today. In fact, this is where we will be if we follow the Paris pledges. And I put again, uh, if there, uh, of course, uh, we will see how the things go. And as IEA, we are looking at every country, what is their pledge, and what are they doing, and how do they compare to each other. So we are uh, tracking this uh, very closely. So we look. What does it mean to have a two degrees Celsius uh, trajectory compared to 2.7 degrees? So two things need to happen. One, we have to see global emissions to peak around 2020, in five years of time. Second, global emissions need to be net zero 2100. Whether or not this will happen will be depending on the governments of the world. We don't know, as IEA, but we say what needs to happen. And uh, therefore, we leave it to the governments 
to, to decide. Of course, in Paris Agreement, there is also a clause to have an ambition to have a, even lower than two degrees, 1.5 degrees Celsius temperature increase, which is for us, when we look at the, uh, what needs to be done, it is, uh, and uh, they found a good English, my colleagues, uncharted territory. So this is the, this is the uh, because you have to, for example, in 2040, all your power system should be zero carbon. So decarbonization of the entire, no oil, no gas, no coal. The entire uh, transportation needs to be electrified and all of the electricity should come from zero carbon, etc., coming together. And it is really in the absence of uh, gigantic innovation and unprecedented uh, policy efforts, it doesn't seem uh, within reach as we, where we stand uh, today. So let me finish our uh, 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 words by trying to put the things together and uh, looking forward to your comments. We think energy security is still a major concern, especially on the oil side, but we have now better tools in hand to have strategic response to oil security, including uh, increasing domestic production, including uh, using energy oil much more efficiently, especially in the transportation sector and uh, others. We think that the, uh, looking at the investment trends and the, uh, the possible responses to the lack of investments may well bring us some difficult days and, uh, in the next few years. And uh, this may also bring more volatility of the prices in the next years uh, to come. A major wave of LNG is coming, and these are the projects already going on, by the way. These are not the forecasts or anything. These are projects already going on. And this will have major implications for the gas security, for the, uh, uh, the contracts, the, and the uh, prices of uh, LNG. Renewables made a major move in the power sector, electricity generation, but there is a still room for especially heating, home heating, in the industrial boilers using biomass, for example, and also transportation. But for this, to see this penetration happening like in the electricity sector, you need specific government policies as we have done for the electricity sector. Now, we have a Paris Agreement. This is very good. But as I said, having a Paris Agreement doesn't mean the deal is done. I'll give you one very illustrative number. Before the in Europe, we have a carbon price. Before the Paris Agreement, the carbon price was 9 euro per ton before the before Paris Agreement. We have a huge success in Paris which gave a signal that there will be less carbon world. But the market reacted differently. $9 carbon price after Paris fell down to $5. So just to see that the uh, uh, agreement itself and the, uh, the, uh, the response of the countries 
may not change the market realities un unless the energy sector moves in that uh, direction. And I finished where I started, and I think it is very uh, appropriate uh, to say this in Washington these days, that the, where we go from here will be depending on the real government policy actions. So thank you very much for your attention. Thank you. Thank you very much, Fatih. Hi, everyone. My name is Sarah Ladislaw. I direct uh, the Energy and National Security Program here at CSIS. I want to join in John uh, Hess and with my colleagues, Frank and Guy and John Hamry, who wasn't able to be here today, to thank you again for coming here. Um, to put out, you know, no conclusive theme on the energy future, but certainly a huge number of areas to think about. We're going to open this up for question uh, uh, very quickly because I know there's many of you who want to ask your questions of Fatih. We have a couple ground rules here. Please uh, state your name and affiliation once you've waited for the microphone. Uh, and then if you could put your question in the form of a question. Uh, we do like feedback, but we want to kind of keep the dialogue going, so please ask a question. I'm going to start off, and then if, John, if you'd like to ask a question too, uh, that, would be, that would be great. You uh, have gotten a lot of press uh, for this uh, outlook in particular because of your outlook on uh, peak demand, peak oil demand, and you talked a bit about it in your presentation. But a couple of questions that came up in some of the dialogue, the very robust dialogue that started since you uh, just announced uh, or just gave the, the rollout of, of the WEO a couple days ago is what accounts for the fundamental difference between, say, you know, thinking that peak oil demand has occurred uh, or is going to occur in very short order versus not going to occur by 2040? And is it, is it um, uh, the, the way that people think about the future of electric vehicles? Is it the signal that, that many other people interpret as having come from the Paris Climate Agreement? Uh, or is it a differentiation of the view of, uh, of energy demand uh, going forward, just people feeling less uh, robust about at least the near term in terms of how much demand we should be seeing and, and what is a sluggish recovery? So why don't we start there, and then I'll turn it over to John for a question. Okay. Uh, thank you very much uh, for this interesting question. Now, I see there are many colleagues said that uh, uh, we will see peak oil demand, and there are two major, uh, I shouldn't say justifications, but drivers why they think so. The one of them is a general one. The Paris Agreement will lead to that. The second one is the electric cars will lead to that. Now, the first one, Paris Agreement, as I said, Paris Agreement wants to give a target of reaching two degrees and even well below two degrees, this is the, this is the expression there, and 1.5 degrees. So if, of course, we go there, the picture I uh, show may be different, but in a, just if you fulfill the pledges in Paris, we don't go there. If there is a big wind worldwide, pro-climate, all the governments, all the key governments of the world, key is underlined, and we may well see towards 2 degrees 1.5, but if you only look at the pledges that the country said they will do, and again, there is no guarantee that they will do what they say they will do. Is that English? Okay. Uh, so it, uh, then we still see an increase in the oil uh, uh, demand. Some colleagues say because of the uh, electric cars increase, a big group of uh, colleagues. 
Yes, electric cars are making big success stories. Last year, there were 550,000 cars sold worth for electric cars. This is the historical record of electric cars last year. But this is less than 1% of the cars sold. So 550,000 is less than 1%. If we assume, as of tomorrow, everybody in the world for 25 years go, and if every second car sold was an electric car, one electric car, the other one is the, the internal combustion engines or gasoline cars, whatever you call them, we will still don't see a peak oil demand because growth is coming somewhere else. So the, the myth that we are uh, trying to deal with here as IEA is that the driver of the oil demand growth is not the cars. The driver is uh, trucks, petrochemicals, jets, uh, and the ships. And the substitution possibilities there are much more limited than in the cars, which are also not a very big opportunity to substitute. So this is the main reason why we have. But uh, of course, it is not only the, uh, the cars and the trucks which determine the oil demand. If there was a recession, we may see a blow, uh, the, the, the decline there. But in a normal world, economic world, we don't see a, a, a uh, oil demand peaking. Dr. Barol, outstanding presentation. Um, you know, your efforts to bring uh, China and hopefully India into the IEA to make it truly a global organization uh, are, are certainly uh, things that we uh, support. And uh, since China and India are so important to the future energy outlook, any thoughts about each or both of those countries and the impact on your outlook to 2040? Okay, of course. Yeah. Now, thank you very much, uh, John. Uh, China is going through a major economic transformation. Uh, the, uh, they call it uh, rebalancing of the economy, moving from a heavy industry-based economy, slowly but surely a service economy, which lightens the, uh, uh, the energy system, which improves their energy efficiency. And as such, we see a couple of trends in China which are very important to underline. In the renewable energy, China is number one of the world. Solar, wind, hydropower, and it will grow. In nuclear, every second nuclear power built, as I said, is in China. Third, oil demand will continue to grow, maybe at a slower pace in the past, but still grow for uh, cars and trucks and petrochemicals. Fourth, we are going to see a gas will play an increasingly important role in China, especially because of there are restrictions for the coal-fired power plants, especially in the coastal part of uh, uh, China. Today, globally, the share of gas in the global energy mix is 25%. In China, it is about 5%. So there's a big difference uh, there. So there's a room for China uh, to grow. But Chinese growth is slowing down with the economic slowdown and the, the restructuring of the economy, less energy-based. And this means that the India is coming very strongly. 
Last year, uh, uh, Sarah uh, may uh, remember, uh, we had the India uh, emphasis there, and we said India is moving to the center stage of global energy affairs. It's what we are seeing today. The oil demand growth is now driven by India globally. So this is uh, very uh, valid. What we are seeing is India's in the coal coming strongly, in the renewables coming uh, strongly. So these two countries uh, together, about uh, 2.4 billion people, will be the drivers of the global energy demand. And the decisions <coughs> taken in uh, Beijing and New Delhi will be as important as other capitals across the world to impact the global energy uh, picture. We share your interest in, in India, where, in fact, uh, this afternoon, CSIS is launching a state and local uh, energy initiative in India uh, with the State Department here this afternoon, so anyone's welcome to join. Okay, I'd like to take some questions. Put your hands up, please, and I will take them three at a time. So we're going to start over on this side. We'll go right back there. And then you two gentlemen, okay? Hi, Allison Good with um, the U.S. Department of Energy. So can you maybe explain in more detail the convergence of factors in the 2020s and 2030s that lead up to the new LNG revolution in 2040 and also maybe explain the breakdown of are these going to be mega projects, are they going to be um, mid-scale or are they going to be small-scale or a combination of both? Thank you. It's for the renewables, LNG. LNG, sorry. Sergei Kostev, Financial University, Moscow, Russia. Two short questions. Do you have any idea what Trump administration energy policy might look like? And second question, how Russia fit in your world energy outlook? Thanks. How Russia fits in this outlook? Thanks. Ari Silman with AT Kearney. And so I was just wondering how the IEA forecast took into account automation, particularly not just for passenger vehicles, but also sort of, uh, freight and maritime automation and how that impacts oil demand. Emissions, you said? Automation. Automation, yeah. And we'll do one more. Right here, please, sir. Adam Siegel, Insight Through Analysis. One of the hardest things, of course, in forecasting is trying to look for the outliers, the surprisers, the surprises. You've suggested a few of them in the talk. But you, could you discuss perhaps what you think might be the not so black, but the black swans that might change the forecast? I'm sure you'll have an answer to both okay. the yeah. black swans and the Trump policy, right? Yes, definitely. <laughs> now, uh, the LNG projects, uh, we are seeing two phases here. The first phase is uh, US and Australia. We will see the impact of that, as I said, around 2020s and perhaps uh, a few years earlier or uh, later. The second phase uh, will be uh, Mozambique, Tanzania, and uh, uh, Canada. This is the second phase, and this is in addition to the, uh, the uh, possible uh, contributions which could come from uh, the current ones, such as uh, Qatar or maybe Russia. But these five countries I mentioned, US, Australia, Mozambique, Tanzania, and Canada, we are expecting significant uh, waves in two uh, uh, periods around the first one, US and Canada, followed by these two African countries and, uh, and Canada. Uh, Trump uh, question. Now, uh, 
governments uh, across the world uh, come and go, and this is a, a normal thing, and the uh, governments may uh, well uh, change their uh, policies, energy policies, and this is also very uh, normal. And the United States, uh, there will be a new administration. Uh, the U.S., given the sheer size of the U.S. economy, the role of United States in international affairs is uh, so important that the, if there are any changes, this will have implications not only for the U.S. Uh, energy markets, but also uh, beyond. But where we stand now, I personally do not know what the new policies are, if any, and how they could uh, affect the markets. And I don't want to speculate now uh, where we are. When those policies become uh, real, we will take them on board and look at the implications for the U.S. and for the global uh, markets. For Russia, uh, Russia is uh, one of the uh, cornerstones of the global energy system in terms of oil, gas, coal, hydropower, uh, uh, the uranium. Uh, we expect uh, that the Russia uh, will play its role, but in terms of uh, oil, uh, there will be uh, important challenges for uh, Russia to uh, mobilize investments in a low price uh, environment and also given the rather um, mature nature of the oil fields, uh, which are some of them in a decline, to uh, keep the production uh, at these levels or uh, increase. And in terms of gas, uh, Russia is uh, today a, a, a key gas exporter, especially to, uh, to Europe, but uh, there will be some competition coming. At least one of them is LNG, I mentioned, and uh, also uh, there may be other uh, competition, such as the East Mediterranean uh, gas, which may be also uh, something to uh, take uh, note of. So there will be more competition in the future than in the past for, the, uh, for Russia in terms of reaching out to the new clients or even perhaps uh, keeping the existing clients in hand and maybe need for giving a second look at the pricing and contract uh, regimes. Uh, automation, uh, we also uh, look at the automation in different uh, ways, but at this stage we do not think that the, it is in a phase we should have a major change as we stand now on the uh, uh, trends. Outliers, there may be many outliers, surprises, and I don't know what they are, otherwise they wouldn't be a surprise, but I would tell you two things, two areas that we need to keep an eye on. One of them is the, the storage. Uh, we may well see some breakthroughs in terms of the economic viability of uh, storage there. There's a lot of work going on, and, there's a, and we work ourselves a lot on the, on the, the, the storage. The, I'm talking about electricity storage, well, by the way. Uh, here it is uh, very important. And the second one is, uh, I mentioned the 35% of the oil is coming from uh, Middle East. And I hope that uh, everything uh, goes smoothly in the uh, 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 Middle East, uh, that uh, it doesn't have any implications for the oil markets in the next years to come. And given the, some of the things what we are seeing in uh, television, especially what's happening in Iraq, Libya, Syria, I hope they will not be major uh, challenges for the uh, production, uh, as it is the Middle East is and will remain central to the global oil markets for many years to come.
Can I ask a real quick follow-on to that, which yes. is typically when we think about the Middle East, sometimes it's a security dynamic, but there's a huge amount of reform going on right now in many important countries yes. in the Middle East. Has, has that reform solidified enough that it makes it into how you think about this in your outlook? I really applaud the both Saudi and UAE move there because one of the messages I try to give is that we expect a lot of volatility in the prices and they have to uh, prepare their economies uh, much stronger and diversifying the economic base, broadening the economic base is a very good idea, very timely idea so that the, if the prices go down, their economies is less affected from those prices. Uh, the plans are there, and I hope the implementation uh, comes as strong as those plans uh, we, we see. Great. Okay, let's take another round, please. We'll go to Bill, we'll go to Jamie, and then we'll uh, do Lee and Herman in here. So let's try to get five in if we can, but we, please be quick. Uh, Bill Eichward, consultant. Um, with aviation being one of the growth areas for oil demand, I'm wondering what you what your views are and observations about the recent agreement among the global aviation industry on climate and energy goals. Okay. And why don't we just go right here because of the efficiency of the mic, and then we'll get back to Jamie. Efficiency of the mic. I've never said that before. Good morning. My name is Romero Fon. I'm a reporter with E&E News. Um, echoing on the Trump question, he's threatened to withdraw from the Paris Accords. Uh, how much does adherence to these Paris commitments factor into your analysis, um, either hitting the existing targets or actually going beyond them or failing to meet them? Okay, great. And then why don't we come over to Sanju, why don't we go to Herman right here. Jamie, nothing personal, you're just back there. <laughs> Herman Franson, Energy Intelligence. Uh, Fatih, I want to ask you a question a little bit more about the medium term. Uh, I fully agree with your assessment that the potential for a shock is there later in the decade if investments are not forthcoming. Now, at around $65 a barrel, we could have significant growth in the United States in tight oil. Now, if you were sitting in the Middle East on the vast resources of the entire Middle East, and you're looking at peak demand out there, perhaps as early as Shell says, 2025, 2030, others say later, wouldn't you go to start producing a great deal more oil as fast as you can, up till a price where you see that the tight oil producers are going to go all out? Uh, <clears throat> Jamie Webster, fellow at uh, Columbia and at the uh, senior director at VCG Center for Energy Impact. Fatih, thank you for your comments. Uh, as always, my uh, question is uh, expanding on some of your comments you made about storage. Storage has grown dramatically in oil in terms of total volumes, but also capacity has grown quite a bit as well. We've also seen this in natural gas and coal as well in a couple of different places. Given your views on the chance for increased energy volatility, and issues with energy security. What role do you see in terms of, in terms of energy storage uh, for those more traditional fuels over the next couple of decades? One more person. One more person? Oh, Lee, sorry, Chief Lee. Thank you. Uh, Lee Livergood with Mitsubishi. Uh, Fatih, I know that one of the things that the IEA has been working on this year is the role of water in the energy world. Um, so if you could speak a little bit about your views or conclusions about the role of water in a low carbon pathway, I'd appreciate it. Thank you. Great question. Thank you very much. So uh, starting with uh, Bill's question on uh, aviation, yes, the aviation uh, uh, companies came together and put some uh, efficiency 
targets, improvements in order to reduce the uh, emissions. And the oil demand uh, slide I show you, the growth in aviation, takes into consideration that those efficiency goals are met. If it was not there, it will be even, it will be even uh, higher. So uh, aviation is not much considered, unfortunately, the oil business. It's completely wrong as a major driver of oil, but it's uh, oil demand, but it is really so when you look at the numbers and look at the, uh, the activity levels, uh, how many, uh, uh, especially in Asia, the growing uh, kilometers by aviation is huge. There's a huge uh, growth there by the getting the cheaper, get, getting the uh, aviation becoming cheaper, plus people's incomes are increasing. So this is uh, number one. The again the uh, the what happened if the next administration uh, withdraws the uh, Paris commitment? I don't know if they are going to withdraw or not, but. If you want to see the implications of that in our report, we have a scenario which we say no climate policies are uh, considered, which we call uh, the uh, current policy scenario, which means you just simply ignore what happens in Paris, and this shows a much higher increase of emissions and the bigger role of uh, fossil fuels. By the way, this brings me something, one important thing. Uh, when you look at the Paris pledges, picture I show you, different bars, oil, coal, gas, etc. Even with the Paris pledges are implemented, the era of fossil fuel is far from being over. So let's uh, keep it in mind. What happens is that there's a change in the fossil fuel composition. Declining share of coal, higher share of gas, and uh, oil is more or less stable. But there will be still fossil fuels if we implement the Paris and end up with a 2.7 degrees Celsius increase in the temperature. Now, Herman's question, $65 oil, and oil demand is rather uh, weak, what would I uh, do if I was in the uh, Middle East, even the Middle East uh, exporting country, you mean, I guess, uh, Herman? So I would be uh, very careful in making uh, investments before understanding the market uh, dynamics. And I would first see what happens in, uh, in the next uh, few years, as I mentioned, we may well see some surprises as a result of this three years in a row uh, very low activity in terms of production, in terms of exploration, in terms of the final approval of the projects. I mean, this is a, how the Mets don't add up that the shale oil will save us from this uh, rather difficult uh, situation. The base load production is in a, uh, entering a, a challenging period. So therefore, if I was in the Middle East, I would first wait and see what is happening there. We have currently substantial amount of oil in the market, but in a few years of time, the picture will change, and the, uh, the colleagues in the Middle East will need to uh, understand to live, get used to live in a time where there is a significant amount of shale oil and oil sands, 
in, in Canada, which can be profitable uh, at the $65 or so, definitely. But their coming to the, uh, to the market may well take some time, again, up to one year, not immediately uh, uh, coming there. So uh, this, is, this will be my uh, word. And the second, uh, my suggestion would be diversify the economy away from oil. You will enjoy still oil product revenues, but it is now the time of having a single product economy is over in terms of oil. And this applies to Middle East, but also, in my view, to Russia uh, as well. Otherwise, uh, your survival of your country's economy will be only depending on the level of oil prices, which is a risky business in my uh, view. Now, uh, uh, James is always a very good uh, question. The energy storage, both oil and gas, I think will be still important for the uh, difficult days, for the volatile days, for the dangerous days. And uh, many countries today are building uh, gas storage. China is uh, putting a lot of emphasis on the uh, oil uh, for the difficult days uh, to come. Uh, it is a, today is a very uh, sunny day in Washington, but it may rain uh, uh, tomorrow. And therefore, we have to uh, be prepared for those uh, rainy days. And it is very important to address the, the, not only the price, but also other uh, challenges we may uh, see in terms of physical uh, disruptions. We have an excellent chapter in our uh, outlook on uh, water. I didn't uh, have time to uh, talk about that. In fact, uh, prepared by a, a former CSIS uh, colleague, uh, uh, Molly, and uh, uh, Guy Caruso is one of the uh, students uh, uh, like me. What it says is that uh, the world, energy world is becoming thirstier and thirstier in terms of water. This is also true even in a climate-driven world, because of the renewables need a lot of water. So therefore, the, the message coming from that work is energy and water policies need to be uh, taught in tandem with, with each other. For power plants, I mean, in the thermal power plant, you need water to cool down the, the towers. Okay, this is, and also you need energy, especially in the Middle East, to designate the water, designation and to get uh, uh, water for uh, drinking purposes. So therefore, energy and water are more and more interwoven, and energy sector needs uh, more and more water in the future. Great. Thank you. Okay, I think we've got time for one more round. So right you there. I'm Haigu Garatz with Argus Media. Uh, you've spoken in recent months about destination clauses in LNG contracts and, and broadly about uh, development of spot LNG market. Uh, what are the timelines you have in mind and uh, what do you think would be the greatest obstacle and, and how does that fit into your uh, prediction of or forecast of LNG as the new golden age of gas? Uh, Bernie Corbett with Terra Alpha Investments, and um, obviously much of the talk today is kind of focused on government regulation and how policy from the public sector is really going to catalyze action. I was wondering if you could speak a little bit about um, the significance you see of the private sector kind of acting on its own to source more renewable energy and probably more importantly, um, just generally create more energy efficient products and services. 
I'm Bill Hederman with the University of Pennsylvania. Uh, I wanted to ask about Russia and China and natural gas. So as, as Europe responded to Russia's actions in Ukraine, et cetera, uh, and as the U.S. LNG development seemed to be growing, uh, China kind of comes to the rescue of Russia, and, and China gets a pretty good deal. If you do the back of the envelope calculation, it looks like the uh, price of Russian gas into China would compete with uh, U.S. LNG to China. I'm wondering how much you think those global dynamics are going to work out that way. And I'm just going to add one more to the mix, Fatih. So there's an OPEC meeting coming up. Does the outcome matter to your outlook? Oh, Guy. Yeah. Guy Caruso, CSIS. Fatih, I know one of your initiatives that you've taken, uh, the lead at uh, IEA, is the broaden the perspective of energy security beyond oil. Yeah. And I know that's going to be critically important given this outlook. So would you, could you expand a little bit on that initiative? Okay. Thank you very much. <clears throat> So uh, the first question about LNG developments, what does it mean in the loss of LNG coming to the markets? A couple of things. First, uh, there will be more flexibility. Second, it will make the hands of uh, importers stronger. Third, it will make the life of traditional pipeline exporters a bit more difficult than in the past. Fourth, uh, the exporters need to be a bit more forthcoming in terms of pricing and in terms of contracts because, now especially in Asia, very this is the biggest uh, market worldwide. The LNG is not the only fuel. LNG has to compete with the very cheap but environment, uh, not very friendly coal, also renewables cost coming down and government support. LNG to find a, a good uh, perspective there, I think the exporters uh, need to uh, come up with uh, more favorable terms, both in terms of the uh, getting out of the destination clause uh, in, uh, in many cases, providing flexibility, and the contracts may be more flexible in the future, which will make uh, LNG uh, much more competitive vis-a-vis -vis, uh, others. Private sector role in renewables. Now, to be honest with you, when I talk on this, uh, the, uh, the, the numbers, renewable bars are growing, they are all made by the uh, private sector, those investments, and they are not made because of the private sector suddenly uh, fell in love with renewables. It is because it makes money, it brings money. And why it brings money? Because uh, the first, the, uh, the, uh, the cost is coming down, and second, there are uh, good government support in, in some cases. But what our numbers show is that the, the, the support from governments for the renewables uh, will be needed less and less in the future, and the uh, renewables are be will become more and more competitive. But I always warn to the renewable community to say that we are now competitive with gas or coal may be a risky one, 
because government say, if it's so, then I don't uh, support you anymore. So one has to be very careful here, what we are saying. Renewables still need some support, and the money will go to renewables. About 70% of all the power generation investments will uh, go to renewables, and this will mainly by, made by private sector. But once again, this is not uh, because of uh, private sector suddenly wants to save the environment. I'm very open here, because they make money. They make money, and this is very normal, this is very legitimate. Uh, why do we have a, a company to make money? But the governments need to uh, create those conditions that the investing in renewables uh, should uh, have uh, uh, appropriate uh, returns. Uh, this question on the Russia, China, uh, and natural gas. Now, uh, Russia uh, will need to, in my view, uh, if wants to continue to enjoy substantial amount of gas revenues, needs to turn its face uh, slowly but surely to Asia in order to uh, make a, a benefit there. Because for Europe, A, the demand is not growing very much, and B, there are many alternatives coming now. Uh, uh, why demand is not growing? Because renewables are there. The, uh, the efficiency, for example, in uh, Europe, Gas is used mainly for two things, power plants and also for heating at home. In Europe, heating at home, the, the heat demand for gas in the last 20 years was more or less flat, even though the number of households increased substantially because of the efficiency measures applied in the, in, at homes. So therefore, uh, the efficiency, renewables, and the LNG and East Met are all some uh, uh, reasons for Russia not to have huge new potential uh, for uh, uh, Europe, but uh, there's a need to look at uh, China. Of course, uh, for China, China has to make its uh, 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 calculation uh, carefully, having the Australian LNG or uh, US, maybe other LNG, other countries from third uh, uh, parties, or pipeline from uh, Russia. And it's also, again, uh, the availability of LNG there uh, makes the, the hands of Chinese also stronger when they, discuss, uh, when they negotiate with the, uh, Chinese, uh, with the Russians in terms of the, uh, the, the gas uh, prices and the, and the contracts. OPEC uh, meta, does OPEC meta, OPEC uh, does always uh, uh, meta, but uh, what I said, as I said uh, uh, before, uh, the, the agreement, how the agreement will come, if it will be a freeze, or it will be a cut, uh, it will be important, the numbers coming from there, in terms of the effectiveness of that uh, uh, agreement. Uh, we will see how the markets uh, will uh, see uh, those uh, numbers, but in order to have a, in order to have a real uh, market impact, uh, one has to look at the numbers uh, uh, carefully. Uh, there, not a general uh, I would say agreement, but the numbers are important. Uh, now, uh, within the IEA, we we are an organisation to look after the oil security which we are doing since uh, 40 years in the uh, first and second uh, uh, the, uh, the Iraq war and in the, during the Hurricane Katrina and different occasions uh, we were able to 
uh, supply oil to the markets, to come down the markets. But now we are thinking of going beyond oil uh, security. And there are two areas. One is the natural gas. We would like to bring in terms of uh, LNG, bring more transparency, the flexibilities, rigidities in terms of uh, uh, LNG, and also bring transparency about the volumes the contracted uh, volumes and uncontracted volumes in the markets, so that there is more transparency and improved energy security. We are going to announce our new work uh, in the, there is a, a major LNG conference in uh, Tokyo next week, producer consumer meeting, we are going to announce it there. And finally, in terms of electricity security, uh, renewables are growing, as we said, but the growing share of intermittent renewables may have implications on the, uh, the stability of the system how to integrate the increasing share of renewables in the system without having any uh, system challenges. Uh, we are uh, coming with up some uh, models. The, we have a new uh, major uh, division, which we call the system integration of renewables, how to integrate them in a secure way and in the most economic way. In some countries, there are some renewable uh, plants which are idle because of talib, uh, the demand is not uh, high enough. So how to integrate them uh, to the system is also a, a needs a clever market design, and we are also working on that in the context of broadening our energy security mandate in addition to oil, we look at natural gas and electricity security. Well, Fatih, on behalf of everybody here at CSIS, I just want to thank you for always bringing IEA's insights and your wisdom here to Washington. It was an excellent presentation. It's given us a lot of things to talk about, uh, and we really appreciate it. So please join me in thanking Fatih Barul.